Uh, a year ago, the run rate was, was about 7 or 8% lower. So we've been a steady mid to high single digit top line grower. Because the number's big, you know, you, 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 uh, you're, you're good with numbers. I am too. So the nominal amount's big enough that we've grown in that range and we'll probably grow closer to 10%, the top line, uh, this year. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka. Now, if you're hearing this, it means you're not currently on our subscriber feed. To subscribe, go to getlatka.com. When you subscribe, you won't hear ads like this one. You'll get the full interviews. Right now, you're only hearing partial interviews. And you'll get interviews three weeks earlier from founders, thinkers, and people I find interesting. Like Eric Wan, 18 months before he took Zoom public. We've got to grow faster. Minimum is 100% over the past several years. Or bootstrap founders like Vivek of Question Pro. When I started the company, it was not cool to raise. Or Looker CEO Frank Bean before Google acquired his company for $2.6 billion. We want to see a real pervasive data culture, and then the rest flows behind that. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. There, you'll find a private RSS feed that you can add to your favorite podcast listening tool, along with other subscriber-only content. Now look, I never want money to be the reason you can't listen to episodes. On the checkout page, you'll see an option to request free access. I grant 100% of those requests, no questions asked. Hey guys, my guest today is Steve Murphy. He joined Epicor Software Corporation as CEO in October of 2017, bringing over 20 years of technology industry executive management experience to the role. As CEO, he's responsible for providing a long-term strategic vision for the company with a focus on customer experience and delivering innovative product services that support and drive business growth. Steve, you ready to take to the top? Yeah, hey, great. Thanks, Nathan. Good to be here. Look forward to spending a little time with you. You bet. Now, Epicor has quite a history here. They officially launched, what was this, like 1970-something? The company's about as old as me. So it's been in business since 1971. Um, we're almost 50 years old. And we've grown a lot in the last few years, but we generally have stuck to supporting manufacturing, distribution, warehousing, things like that, which has become a pretty hot business in the last few years, surprisingly. Now, how do you explain what you do today simply? Because when you look at where you rank in Magic Quadrant to Gartner, I mean, you rank for things like CRM, supply chain management, you play in the HR tech space and the human capital management space. It used to be on-prem. Now you're also SaaS. How do you button all this up into a sentence to describe what you do? Yeah. You know, what I'd say is if somebody makes, moves, or sells a physical product, it could be a vehicle, it could be construction materials, it could be something you buy in a hardware store. The back-end systems that manage all of that movement and inventory, that's what we tend to do. Interesting. Now, give it, providing a little color here before you joined in 2017 of Epicor, and then we'll jump in with you. It, you know, Epicor was a public company. In 2009, revenues breaking $409 million. There was obviously an interesting breakdown of that revenue where, again, about $70 million of that was licensing revenue. There was a big consulting business, I think, of about $128 million. Bucks, and then there was a maintenance contract business of $191 million, and then a little hardware business for $20 million, maybe for installing on-prem sort of hardware stuff. You now come in, obviously, I imagine, drastically changed this revenue mix, and the company has gone across many hands. So Taking into your head, when you were first reached out by the Epicor team to join in 2017, what was the thesis? What did they want you to do and what got you excited? Yeah, you know what? The big one was the pr products were just about, well, in two, two out of three cases, they were cloud ready. And the pivot to cloud hadn't been done yet. And for the listeners, 
thinking about, well, what does that mean, cloud? It's kind of a, one of these terms that's confusing. They had been designed and built in a modern architecture so that you could have nothing more than an Android or an iPhone in your hand and be running the warehouse or the factory with the software actually running in servers in Seattle or Bombay or you know somewhere else far away. Now, having said that, we hadn't done it yet four years ago. We hadn't actually retooled the Salesforce and gone out and converted our existing base to software as a service or gotten good at selling that product into new customers. And over the last four years, that's been our mission. And we've been um, very successful at it. We've built that business into about a quarter of a billion dollars. We'll be about a billion dollar top line business this year. And between a quarter and a third of that now is the cloud. And that's been the, uh, it's been a lot of work, but that's the transition we worked our way through. And one of the things we may talk about is it's change management and people as much as anything when it comes to transitioning a company with that big of a change. And break down a little bit here, how, again, how you got close to the company, because again, this has been through a lot of private equity hands. In 2011, Apex acquired both Epicor and Activent in a $2 billion deal, merged them together, and then ended up with KKR in 2016 in a $3.3 billion deal. Were you sort of an EIR at KKR and they put you in this, like, did they find you as a, at the same time as they bought KK, as they bought Epicor and knew you were going to be the guy? Yeah, you know what? They found me. And if you think about, well, when they find somebody, what are they looking for? And I think in the case of Epicor, they were looking for an executive that really understood manufacturing and distribution. Like the business, I'm a process engineer. I'm a mechanical engineer. And about half of my career was in factories and warehouses. And when I think about why KKR thought I would be a good fit, they knew that I knew the products and had used the products and competed against the products. And more than anything, I believed in the quality of the company and the products, which was what it took four years ago. There was a lot of, um, there were many open questions about, around what would be required for the company to grow and be successful. And at an absolute minimum, whether it's you or me or somebody else, you had to look at it and say, wow, these are great products. Customers will love these products and they'll buy them. If you couldn't believe that, you probably wouldn't have taken the CEO job. And I, I, I knew enough to say products are in good shape. They've been invested in and cared for properly we can go out and grow the business. They found me. I was a good fit. I took a look at it and said, I think I'm the right person to grow this business. And it has worked out as planned, which doesn't always happen. But in this case, it's happened. Rare, rare, rarely happens, I might add. Rarely yeah. happens. So Steve, give me a sense of how the mix has changed since 2017. Again, you had a big on-prem business, a big maintenance contract, SLA-oriented business. You're trying to transition a lot of this to the cloud. But what did the revenue mix look like in 2017? What was total top line and what percent was licensing SaaS? Yeah, so I think the best two points. The best way to look at it would be four years ago in a given quarter, we would book ninety uh, percent on-prem, ten percent SaaS or less. In the most recent quarter, it was a sixty forty split, a flip flop. So sixty percent SaaS, forty percent on-prem. So we we have crossed the Rubicon. We do book more SaaS than on-prem, and that did take the full four years to get to that point. And I don't think we'll ever go back. I think from this point forward, we'll always book more SaaS. Mm-hmm. There is a, um, a segment that really likes on-prem. And in many cases, it could be a, a family business where they are good at managing assets because the biggest difference with on-prem is you have a cabinet with servers in it, you know, Dell servers or whatever. And if you're good at managing those and, and patching and upgrading, and you got people that have that know-how, on-prem can be very cost efficient, but it requires that level of skill. I think that for us, uh, 60-40 split will probably move towards um, 80-20, I don't know if it'll ever go much beyond that because I think there'll always be a segment that likes to be do-it-yourselfers when it comes to managing the ERP system. That's my guess. 
And with this transition, again, you also have to manage growth, right? I mean, people want to see growth in a business, not just changing revenue and cannibalizing on-prem for SaaS. So if you're said you think you're about to break a billion dollars in ARR, about you know, a third of that's going to be SaaS. Where were you exactly a year ago in terms of run rate top line? Yeah, uh, a year ago, the run rate was, was about 7 or 8% lower. So we've been a steady mid to high single digit top line grower. Because the number's big, you know, you, 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 uh, you're, you're good with numbers. I am too. So the nominal amount's big enough that we've grown in that range and we'll probably grow closer to 10%, the top line, uh, this year. Wow. Having said that, the because SaaS has been a quarter to a third, that has grown at three or four times that fast. And we've typically seen 30 to 40% growth, sometimes more in that SaaS business. And it's most of our growth. And then with the on-prem, seeing it be uh, roughly flat, it's um, the on-prem business and the maintenance business. It isn't contracting. It isn't getting smaller, but it's almost perfectly flat. Are, are debt providers or other people that are putting valuations in the business, do you feel like they're appreciating the rapid growth of the SaaS business considering it's a little bit muddied from all the other revenue lines? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I think two years ago, uh, we were just at the point where they noticed it. A year ago, when Clayton Dubler and Rice was putting a price tag on us, valuing us, they did appreciate it. And at this point, with the numbers we're talking about, they absolutely do. But there's there's kind of a, uh, within your question, I think there's a saturation point at around third to a half of your ARR. When you get to that point being cloud, people do have to say you're kind of a cloud business. And then with the bookings number I gave you, because we're booking more SaaS than anything else, it changes the valuation. And it, it'll be interesting for people like us to see whether or not that valuation model holds up. I mean, is it, there's no um, Excel model that says you should have a different discount rate for one revenue stream versus another, but people do like cloud as far as valuation. And, and that is in style and probably will be at least for a while. Yeah. Well, this is, this is a little bit what I don't understand because you've got these companies like UiPath and Databricks, which are trading at 60 to 65 X ARR multiples and in terms of the last round of VC they brought in. But when yeah. you go back and, and the deal you just cited with CDNR, right? I think the total deal price there was a $4.7 billion deal, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you only had at that point, 300 million bucks in pure SaaS ARR, right? There are companies out there right now that are pure SaaS plays with less ARR getting higher valuations than 4.7 billion. And you go, what the hell is going on here? Steve's, this is a more durable business. Steve has more experience. They should be getting a higher valuation. Why did CDNR only pay 4.7 billion? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. I think there are two things going on. One is when you think about how much capital right now is on the sidelines chasing growth stories, you do see some frothy uh, exuberance in some of the bets people are willing to place. So that's one. I think the other one is there's a there's a sense of uh, well-deserved respect for how hard it is to migrate the installed base. So you could look at an Epicor and say, well, you've got a tremendous amount of value, but unleashing it or unlocking it takes time and effort. And that's true. So, I mean, I, I understand why the valuation came out around 4.7, 4.8 billion. Now, as we demonstrate, you know, kind of the say do quotient for us, is high as far as converting that install base, which it has been, it does help with the valuation. And I think, you know, as we go through this year, year or two from now, as those metrics, the, the one you refer to, the ARR, you know, the percentage of it, which is SAS goes higher and higher and higher. You have to say, okay, you've got it. You, you're there. But I think that's it. I think that you've got a lot of companies where the mar- the architecture, a couple of points you made, you know, 60, 70 times ARR, the mar- architecture could be completely modern. And there's some of those points of resistance they just don't have in the model that gives them benefit evaluation. Also true 
that a lot of these companies won't live up to it. And it'll take a year or two before people realize, hey, you know, they're, they're nowhere close to being worth what we thought. So uh, time will tell. But uh, I don't uh, despair. I think CDR paid a fair price. And I think we, uh, we continue to justify a higher price as we execute. CDNR is kind of a surprise buyer in this space. I mean, you've got ties to Austin. KKR knows who Vista Equity is. Why didn't Vista come in and offer more than $4.7 billion? Well, you know, they're all pretty shrewd operators and bargain hunters. And I think that in some cases, um, the, the analysts or the people running the valuation models look more at the point I made earlier, which is, hey, there's a lot of legacy business here. It's going to be expensive to migrate it over. And if the attitude of the investor, like a CDNR, is, hey, let's take a little time and look at the quality of the SaaS products. Have they really modernized them as much as they say? In our case, we have. And then some. It, it is, it's interesting when you do one of these beauty contests, different people look for different things and come to different conclusions. And it's, it's capitalism in its rawest form. So I think CDNR has been a great partner. And I think they, they're thrilled with how well we've done since they bought us. But I think, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for Vista. And I think they probably kicked the tires and said, that's a big chore, you know, to continue to rotate over from the on-prem business. And we're not sure we want to sign up for something that could take that long. There's a path, I imagine, where in 2022 or 2023, when some of this debt is coming due, we see Vista coming in and offering you something like $10 billion, right? Are we going to read that headline? Who knows? Who knows? I think <laughs> you never know. But I, I think that um, the, the valuations, the, the, we are aware of the fact that as we dramatically increase the percentage of business at SaaS, it helps with the valuation. And there are some real things in there around net retention for SaaS. It's really high. Once how, how high How high is it? I mean, are you above 140 net dollar retention, 140%? We aren't that high, but we're well over 100. I don't think we okay. would share exactly what it is, but I'd say it's it's um, it's demonstrably higher than old-fashioned maintenance, which is nice, right? Because cross-sell, upsell, ad users, we really like that. So as a guy, you know, as a 50-year-old CEO that kind of poo-pooed SaaS 10 years ago, I'll say that it's really sticky. And once a customer decides they like SaaS, they tend to buy more and more users and add modules uh, over the years more than I expected. I'm going to ask this question because you are a top 1% of CEOs in the world that can answer this. You joined in 2017. The company was already in the hands of private equity. There's a lot of private equity firms that are dealing with CEOs I have on this show doing things like $200 million secondaries magnifying that times a factor of 10 at what you see at Epicor. You know, the company had approximately 1.7 billion outstanding on a first tier loan that paid 320 bips over LIBOR and that matured in June of 2020. This was in 2019. I imagine these debt schedules fuel a lot of the M&A in the private equity world. So can you just teach us quickly, how does private equity companies like CDNR and KKR make money on a play like Epicor while also managing this debt? And how does that impact your ability as a CEO to run the company? Yeah, I think for most people, it would be very similar to uh, when you go buy a house, you put a down payment down, maybe 20%, you know, four quarters of the house is debt. So if the house appreciates, you get all the appreciation, you don't have to pay the, the bank on the appreciation. So for us, I think that we we really need to know that if you're a CDNR or a KKR for starters, is the recurring revenue stream, we talked about retention rates, is the recurring revenue stream as stable and profitable as we thought? And can we build upon that in some, some kind of a predictable fashion? And if you can do that with a software company, you can take on that kind of debt load, Nathan, and be comfortable with it. And then demonstrate, I think here's the biggest thing, demonstrate over a period of maybe a year and a half or two years, six to eight quarters to the, the investment community that you've got a, it's kind of like a bond with a call option. You've got this bond, which is the recurring revenue stream, the call options. You have great products and you can sell more and more, flip them over to the fast. 
if you're an investor and you can find an asset that fits that profile, you can do really well with it, but you've got to do both. You've got to be that predictable bond and you've got to find the growth with the call option. You can do things like in the last six months, and this is all you know, public record, we went back into the markets and we're able to uh, refinance the first lane and do really well on it. And we had earned the right to do that. Uh, we didn't go out and you know, get a dividend or do anything self-serving. We just said, wow, we can take this thing down by about 125 basis points. When you're talking about you know two two billion plus in debt, it saves a lot of money. So those are some of the things that when management cooperates with the investor, you can really create a lot of long-term value. But you've got to have that level of cooperation, and we've got it with KKR, the great shop, and we have it with CDNR. But uh, you, you really zeroed in on it. That that I think is part of the formula that's got to work. And I just, there's a lot of people that want to do like mini versions of private equity firms themselves, right? They've got hundred million to play with. They want to do this. And I think what a lot of people miss is a lot of these private equity firms, they don't actually have to grow value, grow revenue a ton to make money on these deals because they can get smart with how they do debt. So when you talk about the refis and the first lane refi and things of that nature, I mean, it was reported that about 560 million bucks of the proceeds from that loan being sold by Epicor was used for a payout to KKNR, right? So they can still make money on this. My question for you as CEO is, like when they're recruiting and you're coming in, how do you make sure that you and your team right, get the equivalent of some gains from this sort of arbitrage that private equity firms are playing? Yeah. So I think that you know, human beings, uh, there's some consistency you want to, want to be paid, right? They want to make money. And when you're, one of the biggest challenges to the point you just made is when you're private, the payout may be three or five, you know, three, four, five years apart. Whereas when you're public, every 90 days, you get outside the quiet period, you can trade the stock. So I keep an eye on that because I've got a, you know, a group of people, we've got 4,000 employees, but a hundred or so, most of what they make is in stock or a big portion of what they make is in stock. And we try to think about whether it's a dividend, you know, once every three or four or five years or a transaction, what's the frequency upon which people need to get that compensation and feel right about it. And you can't rush it. So you can't go, Hey, we're going to try to do something to create liquidity and have the, uh, the company's balance sheet suffer at that expense. So I think it's thinking, think with the end in mind. If, if you think, hey, within the next three or four years, we want to do something like this. What are the metrics? How does the balance sheet and the income statement, what do they need to look like so that the banks would be thrilled to be a part of whatever we're expecting to do? And if you do that, then you're fine. I think where people get in trouble is when they want to create liquidity too frequently in private equity, you can't do it every year or every other year. Maybe it's every three years. Or if they think they can wait five to 10 years, then you lose good people, right? Because people... They have kids in college. They have you know, a variety of responsibilities where they've got to get that at some point. That's the advice I would give is you probably need to have a liquidity event every three or four years, but you need to plan for that as part of your job all the time. You really need to be prepared for it. Steve, as we wrap up here, what, what percent of your base revenue called a billion run rate do you think needs to be high margin, pure play cloud revenue for you to test public markets, whether it's via a SPAC or an IPO and tap into this sort of very frothy SaaS valuations we're seeing right now? Yeah. So I think I, I actually have a pretty specific answer. I think it's half of our recurring revenue, half or more of our recurring revenue needs to be SaaS cloud revenue. And we're, we're right about there. So I'd say we're about uh, 70% recurring. So we'll say 700 million, 675 is recurring. And I'd say at around 300 to 350, uh, we're, where clearly we've crossed the saturation point to SaaS. That's, that's my perspective on it. Steve, we love that, man. Take us home here. What's something you wish you knew, you, before you got into all this business stuff, what's something you wish you knew when you, 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 knew when you were 20? Um, I think, 
as, as a, a father of a couple of a kid who's about 20 and a couple other teenagers, what I try to tell them is failure. Um, failure is not only necessary, it's by far the quickest learning mechanism there is. So, so don't, um, don't <laughs> spin on that failure, accept it and move on. And some of the best lessons you learn will be for some tough failures. You're not the only one. So um, it's a hard lesson to learn, but don't be embarrassed. Do your best. And if you fail, keep going. Guys, Steve Murphy, Epicor, previously OpenText, joined Epicor in 2017, still in the hands of KKR, ultimately a $4.7 billion deal to CDNR last year, now scaling the company, targeting getting up to 50% of his base being pure play SaaS revenue. Currently, 70% of total revenue is recurring, but again, just not pure play SaaS yet. They're continuing to scale that market with high, high net dollar retention rates. Uh, Steve, we'll follow along. Thanks for taking us to the top. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. It was a pleasure. All right, guys, cut. Steve, what do you think, man? You have fun? That was great. Yeah, I think that was that was good. And I appreciate you weaving the numbers in there. Um, I'm a numbers guy too. And as we both know, most people aren't. So hopefully you got, a, you got an audience that'll uh, enjoy that. It was exciting. And for those who like the numbers, there's plenty to chew on. It's it's how the world works. You got to understand the game to play it. So I appreciate you coming on being so transparent. Please thank, you, thank your team for making it really easy to book you and get us all scheduled. Okay, good stuff. Nice all right. Take yeah. care. Bye.